Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. We set people some homework last week, didn't we, Mark? Um, We wanted to know... What were the first cases of sampling? So people came in with various various suggestions. Some really interesting, and I it sent me it sent me down a rabbit hole, Mark, and I've emerged from the rabbit hole, and I haven't used because I have discovered that you know that you're the source of the Nile, the beginning of sampling. I have discovered it, so stay tuned. Oh, I think I have too, because I've been down in a, a, a rabbit hole as well. It's Good. fascinating. Good. Go on, let's see what you got. Well, I got all kinds of things, like people suggested, obviously, I Am the Walrus by the Beatles. Has that bit near the end where you can hear a distant radio recording performance. Sit you down, Father, rest you. Sit you down, Father, rest you. <laughs> I it, remember that so vividly when it came out. I was so excited about it. I didn't know what it was. Well, it was King Lear. Yeah, you know, they spun the dial, didn't they, when they were recording? It was live. It was on the on the radio yeah. on the day that they were doing it. And um, so it's John Gielgud, I think, starring and possibly directing as well. Um, and so you get you get snatches of that. But there's very little from the 60s that would qualify as, as sampling. Although one thing was suggested to me by Matthew Brannigan, and thanks for that, Matthew. He suggested um, an extraordinary thing. Do you remember the, a TV programme from 1960 called The Strange World of Gurney Slade, starring Anthony Newley? It only ran very... Very briefly, I, I never, I never saw it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, I've heard of it. It's kind of it's the sort of thing that became a cult years later, and um, and the theme tune for that was uh, done by called Max Harris, and uh, I'm going to try and play a little bit of it now. Let's see if you can hear this. Can you hear that? Yeah. And so forth. That's the piano. Do you hear the piano? That beginning yeah. of that. Okay. That piano. Um, uh, our correspondent thought might have been sampled from Parchman Farm by Mose Allison, which was wow. a kind of cult hit from 1957. And it certainly sounds like it. Just like it. But I can't believe it was because I can't believe in 1960 that they would allow sufficient time for a session to do that, you know, to to steal some of uh, of um, Mose Allison's Parchment Farm and to somehow loop it and to make it the basis of the of the uh, the theme tune from Gurney Slade. I think it was more, more more like a case of Max Harris, who was the musician, who was apparently very well known as a 
highly skilled mimic could, you know, hear anything and play it. That was probably a case of him playing it himself. So that's just one theory. Other things people suggested, Broken Arrow by Buffalo Springfield from the late 60s. Oh, which has the burst of applause at the beginning, is that it, right? It's screaming at the beginning. You hear That's screaming right. girls and then you hear Buffalo Springfield playing Mr. Soul, their, their earlier hit. The, um, the screaming apparently comes from a Beatles concert. That's brilliant. That yeah. reminded remind me of, the, of, of a kind of a visual version of that, which was the Dave Clark Five on Ready Steady Go. Do you remember that? They used to they re-edited those Dave Clark Five appearances with uh, the Beatles audience. Oh, right. It's given away by the fact that they're screaming, they're going mental, you know, which they clearly weren't going quite as mental after Dave Clark Five. And you can see, because in one of the pictures, in one of the shots, there's a, somebody holding an I Love Ringo banner or something, <laughs> you know, which rather gives it away. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what But I, do you think there's two different types? It struck me there's two different types of sampling really there's there's somewhere people just use bits of speech or whatever um and just patch it into a, a, a kind of patchwork of sound and there's another type where you use a piece of music from another record another time as an intrinsic part of the track yeah because yeah. i found a, i don't know if this is the first case of sound but i found a track uh which is called the flying saucer <coughs> came out in 1956 by two guys called Buchanan and Goodman. And it's a comedy record, really. It's kind of Chris Morris type thing. Well, what they do is they tell a story, but they do it by using snatches of records. And so, you know, you've got them saying things like, um, and you, the gentleman with the guitar, what would you do? And then you get Elvis Presley going, take a walk down Lonely Street. You know what I mean? And then someone else, they say, are you there? It's Smiley Lewis going, I hear you knocking. So they just built a story out of these little bits of things. But I think that the, um, the, the first, uh, as far as I can see, one of the first examples of it actually being used on a record was sent in by Joel from Brighter Day Vinyl, old pal of ours, who said on the 1971 record called He's Gonna Step On You Again yeah, by John, John Congress. Congress. Have you got that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah I've got it here. I, so play a bit of it. It's, um, I'll just take it from this. You probably know that one. It's the kind of thing that got get, gets reissued regularly over the years. So what's sampled on that? But he said that that uh, is over a soundbed of a tape of African drumming. And right. it starts with African drumming. So that, I think, runs throughout the entire record. So that was his, his uh, suggestion what? for the first kind well, of Well, round about sample. the same time, interestingly, round about the same time, on the French Barclay label, although it went on to be a hit all over the world, was a record called Burundi Black, mm. uh, which is based on the Burundi drummers, the drummers of Burundi, uh, which was turned into kind of early disco record, was an absolutely enormous hit. And, of course, what I only realised after we started thinking about this thing last week is Joni Mitchell's The Hissing of Summer Lawns, which is, what is it, 1974 or five, five I think, 1975, yeah. the second track is The Jungle Line, which is Joni Mitchell and guitar, a synthesizer, and then the drummers of Burundi. Absolutely all the way through it. I can't play that for you because it's not on Spotify. Thanks, Joni. <laughs> uh, but yeah. I love the way that everyone thought that the Burundi beat was kind of invented by Malcolm McLaren and Bow Wow yeah. Wow and Adam and the Ants. Actually, there's people using it a long time before. Ten years before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely extraordinary. There's another personal favourite of mine is, um, if you listen to this, this is... This is a record produced by Lee Perry in the very in the very early seventies. <laughs> oh, this classic, cla- classic Lee Perry. It's taught that bit of music that you hear at the beginning of that, which bears no relation whatsoever to anything that comes later, is pinched straight off a Staples Singers record. And he, the reason it was done is that is Lee Perry was obsessed with the fact that they had stolen the return of Django, one of his masterpieces, for the beginning of I'll Take You There by the Staples Singers. You know that famous that famous yeah. guitar intro? So he was just simply evening the score. Evening the score. I can't do anything about it through the courts. I'm just going to hook a piece of your record and put it 
put it at the beginning of mine. So that was that was the irrepressible, That's very funny. comic majesty of of Lee Perry. Yeah, yeah. But then it made me think. You know, if you go back to your your you know your definition of uh, you know are you using it as music or or, or not? You can take a record like Dark Side of the Moon. Dark Side of the Moon samples all kinds of things, but it, it does them in real in real time. Oh, it's you know? footsteps and uh, heartbeats Foot, and, well, yeah, and cash yeah, registers. The cash register, which is turned into a rhythm alarm instrument on, on money, the alarm clock. Yeah. All that stuff. It was all done by Alan Parsons with a, a Ewer tape recorder, you know, going yeah. around the corner and finding a clock shop that... Uh, would wind everything up and let it off at the, at the same time, you know. So that that very much uses it. But I tell you what, my the, the the discovery I made, or the reminder, is this led me back to in 1979, uh, because they'd just gone in the charts with "I Only Want to Be with You." I was sent to interview for Smashheads, the tourists, the tourists. I did too. And I went, okay, Brainsby's office, Tony Brainsby's office, yes, that's yeah, right, yeah. down at Earl's Court or somewhere like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. whatever. And I was talking to Dave Stewart. I can't remember how it came up, but Dave Stewart, obviously, boffin, producer, even then, you know, he was he was telling me about a record he's enormously excited by, uh, which had done something that nobody had done before, which had, which was taken... Uh, recordings off the short, shortwave radio of strange Middle Eastern singers and so forth, and had somehow put it together with a band in the studio. So it made a very different kind of music. And um, uh, when, I, I, when I started thinking about this the other day, I thought, have I still got that record? And lo and behold, you know, I, you know I, I'm a great believer in the fact that there, there are certain records you're never meant to be parted from, and thus you never are. It's come back and found you. Hold Holger Zuke. Oh yes, Holger Zuke of uh, of Can, or he, although he left Can at the time, um, I think he started doing this, and he, and he made this record, which was I mean, not a hit or anything, but for the likes of Dave Stewart and probably a lot of people all over the world, scattered all over the world, it's a very different, very different kind of sound. I'll just try and play a bit of it now, so you can get an idea. Is this of it. The, the the record movies? Is this yeah. And you hear all kinds of voices that he's got off the shortwave radio. And it's just got that, it's just strange. It's just ethereal. It's like, it's n- like nothing you've ever heard before. You know, it's like, it's like a dream, you know. And I do think it's interesting that he chose to call it movies because they suggested it was a very different kind of music. You were making music in a very different way, you know. Because yeah. prior to that record... You know, you could say records of the 50s and 60s and 70s. They were made by performance, weren't they? You know, people went to the studio and they had three hours or they had longer if you were the Beatles or whatever. But they broadly, they performed it, you know. And what you heard on the record was what they performed. Whereas what, what Holger Zuke was doing and what loads of people did later on had more in common with putting together a movie where it's not to do with real time at all. It's editing, isn't it? It's editing. It's yeah. putting, putting things together in strange combinations and trying them in loads of different ways. Now, movies, you know, didn't make any great splash, apart from Dave Stewart and so forth. But the record that came out two years later that did and was doing it very much the same way is Brian Eno and David Byrne, My Life in the Bush Again. Yes, it's just the same idea, but yeah. done in slightly more sophisticated fashion. Um, lots of extracts, isn't it? Lots Patched of extracts. Together. Yeah. And then subsequently, they, of course, they had to withdraw the original version because uh, they had um, religious complaints of the opening track, didn't they? So they, if you've got the original version, like Put I... Put it on uh, eBay. <laughs> <laughs> or don't, actually. <laughs> don't. Sit there and crow about it. Don't, yeah. don't do that. Oh, but, wonderful. But I do think it's interesting, you know, that Holger, you know, and Can did some fantastic records. Well, I, I, I like Can. Uh, but I think, you know, Movies is a really pivotal record, actually. If you had it's no doubt, you know, no doubt you can still hear it, you know, via streaming services and so forth. But, you know, you, you could take that view that from 1979 onwards, 
pop music is made in a different way. Completely different. That's true. And and 79, that's very early on, isn't it? I remember, I remember when the Moby records came out and you kind of thought then this is something new. Do you remember Moby sampling all those old blues tracks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that seems to be something really contemporary. But actually, as you say, it's been going on a long time before. And then you start, and it's interesting, that happens before, just before hip-hop, really. And so hip-hop does the same thing, but really gleefully, you know, makes a, makes a huge issue of I pinch absolutely everything, you know, whatever Rappers works. Delight, Grandmaster Flash. Yeah. That, that was their whole thing, was it? That's what we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting, interesting field. If anybody's got anything further to contribute, you know, anybody thinks, well, no doubt we've forgotten there's loads of things we haven't, uh, we haven't talked about that we really should. Um, it's, it's fascinating to go back and, and to listen to that stuff with, uh, with new ears. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. There was a big kickoff um, this week about uh, hashtag Bob Dylan core, <laughs> which I thought was just, I thought it was absolutely riveting. I mean, quite a lot of the old guard really got out of their pram. Sylvie Simmons, old pal of ours, a journalist, was posting a thing about, Sonny, I give up. Being a music magazine used to mean something because Rolling Stone had been the people who, who, uh, who, who kind of first tweeted this. But basically, the, the, it's about the idea that various people had seen the cover of Freewheeling Bob Dylan recorded in February 1963, where he's going down, um, is it Jones Street? I think Something it is, like or Canal Street, I can't remember, with uh, Cesar Rotella, his girlfriend. And the photographer, Don Hunstein, had been taking some pictures in, in, in the flat and said, let's go outside and do some shots. And Dylan deliberately wouldn't wear warm clothes. It was perishingly cold. It was the snow on the ground. The snow, snow. You can actually see the snow in the pictures. Yeah. And he goes out, he's wearing a really thin jacket because he thinks he looks really good yeah, in his jacket, yeah. which, is, to be fair, he does, you know. She's bundled, she's bundled up. <laughs> She's a trailer. I read an interview there not long ago, and she said uh, she still hates that pitch. She says, I look enormous because I'm wearing, for, exa- <laughs> for a start, I'm wearing one of Bob Dylan's old chunky jerseys. <laughs> Very folk music, wearing his clothes, his old jumper, you know. And then a great load of scarves. She looks like Jesus looks like the Michelin man, you know. But anyway, they're walking down that street, and that's a fantastic sleeve. I mean, it was just, it was incredible at the time, you know. A, because, you know, there was somebody with their girlfriend off the cover, which was generally considered to be not a good thing. Because pop stars are meant to be kind of available, but also it was very beatnik, wasn't it? It was a very folk message, wasn't it? These two kind of bohemians, these oh, beatniks, kind of living together. It was an amazing image. It's but anyway, it is, very... Mark, it is Mark. Just to interrupt, it's an important to, to, to keep in mind. It's a lifestyle statement. It's a total that lifestyle picture. statement. Yeah, everybody looked at that, 14 yeah. years old in 1964, and thought, oh, God, I want to be that. I want yeah. to have that life. Yeah. I want to fly yeah, away from my little, little suburban world. And yeah. I want to go to the big city and just mooch around with mooch my hands, around in, hands in my pockets with a gorgeous girl who adores me. You know, yeah. that's all anybody wanted. On the way to a cafe <laughs> where I'm going to have a stack of pancakes because I believe that's what they eat in America. <laughs> and then I'm going to write a brilliant lyric trust for you, a song. Trust you to think about food. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, it's uh, no, I thought it was fantastic. And various people have picked up on this and um, started posting photographs themselves wearing kind of wearing very thin jackets, aren't they, outside? <laughs> and uh, I just found two absolutely brilliant posts. There was one that's, one guy says, uh, a jacket that isn't warm enough is essentially a Bob Dylan jacket. And another guy says, uh, he says, uh, Bob Dylan, he says, he's a funny little guy who wears funny little outfits and his music's good to listen to in the fall. His outfits are fall-based. He just pulls off that look very well. I thought, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because why should we sit here at our age, having grown up with Bob Dylan, and think, oh, no, you know, it's all about the music. It's not all about the music. Because these people are on TikTok, which is where all this took off. These people are, are very rarely listening to any music without knowing what the person who makes yeah, that yeah. music looks like. And therefore, the first thing they're encountering is the image and, you know, the, the whole visual concept, you know. And actually, I thought the point that, Dylan was a fall or a kind of winter concept. It was a really good one, actually. Yeah, a good one. I'd never really thought of that. You know, if you think of those Dylan album sleeves, you know, it's scarves, it's sheepskin coats, isn't it? Suede. It's blonde on suede. blonde. It's, it's the suede. It's ja- a, yeah, well, it's, it's John same, Wesley Harding. Same jacket that he has on what, four albums? It's three, three or four albums wearing the same jacket, exactly. It's Desire, it's Street Legal, it's almost... It. There's something... Also, his music is... Winter music, actually. Yeah. I thought that was a really good point. It's about endurance and it's about rigour and it's about 
suffering and it's about dark personal relationships a lot of the time. You know, there's not much levity. It's, and you don't see... I mean, you know, most people, you get pictures of all, you know, the Beatles skipping around on, on beaches in Florida or whatever. You've never seen... Have you ever seen a picture, of, apart from maybe Nashville Skyline, actually, which is a very sunny record? But otherwise, you know, he is a kind of... He's a, he's a dark winter concept. That was really good. Shelter from the storm. Yeah. Um, oh, and, absolutely. You know, I mean, it, some bands are summer concepts. Wham! Or Beach Boys or whatever. Obviously, that's different. But, but Dylan, I think, does... His music is full music. But if, really if you good. look at those first... What is it? Four album covers. They yeah. are all really powerful messages. And yeah. that first one, which is the least sophisticated one, he's wearing the cap which yeah. used, to, used to be able to send off to the back pages of the small ads and the record mirror and the enemy for a Dylan cap, or later on it was yeah. called a Donovan cap. But basically it was like a cap. It was a, like a railway man's cap. It suggested folk singer. You know? and then Princess the, Anne wore one at one point. And then the second album is, that's freewheeling, isn't it? You know, so he's with the girlfriend. Yeah. And then the third album is The Times They Are Changing and it's shot from below looking very dark, looking like, oh, God, what's the name of the, the, that woman's picture of, uh, of uh, O'Keys during the Depression? Oh, there's a famous uh, photographer who took pictures in the 30s and 40s of... Uh, I, know, I know the picture. I, I can't remember. Yeah, he I looks that, yeah. like that. He, he was supposed to look like Woody Guthrie or, you know, a great American primitive. And then there was what, another side of Bob Dylan, which kind of that's where the theory rather falls apart, I suppose. But but then you know later on you you get you know uh, bringing all back home and and uh, Highway sixty one. Every picture was a message. Oh yeah, every picture you spent hours going through. What's going on there? Look what's in the background. Yeah. yeah. So particularly bringing it all back home because you had loads of little <laughs> magazines and records and clues in front of him. Absolutely. You know. So to say that Bob Dylan didn't understand the the power of of uh, surfaces is just nonsense. Yeah. He understood, he understood it in very very well. Probably better than anybody actually. So and but don't also, you think that's the appeal? I can really understand that because I think half the appeal of Get Back, the Peter Jackson movie, is the look of the. At that particular time, 90% of the reason that people are getting back into the Ramones is what the Ramones look like. Of course it is. You know, the people, I don't think I've met anybody, I can talk about people 30 years younger than us now, who've got into the birds recently without somehow appropriating some of that bird's look. The you don't just listen to the birds, you look like a member of the birds, you wear a fringe jacket, <laughs> don't you? You may even go as far as rectangular sunglasses, I don't know. You comb your hair forward, don't you? That's rectangular. But also going back to Bob Dylan and freewheeling, um, there is nothing that says I want to be a rock star more powerfully than going out in unsuitable clothing. Nothing at all. (laughs) I'm sorry, it's a cry from the heart. Please take me seriously. Look how I'm suffering. I'm suffering. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Well, there was a piece in uh, Variety, I think it was, this week. Uh, maybe this was the piece that had the, the headline, uh, La Vie en Robots. I can't remember. I've read several, actually. <laughs> but the, the Variety one points out that 60 years after her death, uh, Edith Piaf is coming to life in a, in a new biopic, mm-hmm. which is going to use AI to recreate her voice and image. Uh, uh, this is a really interesting story, isn't it? I she's mean, the voice she, bit, I understand. She's going to ta- talk to you, though, isn't she? Mate? Yeah. The, 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 she the, is the, the narrator. This is like, this is Disney. <laughs> this is, yeah. You know, you can go, I think in Disneyland, you can go into a, into a room where uh, various distinguished dead presidents of the United States will speak to you. I yeah. Think they, they, this is that, but taken to the power of a hundred well, they say it's a, it's a voiceover, so that's going to be a personal voiceover. Yeah, that's yeah. not going to be kind of, and then in 1937, I, in a French accent, did so-and-so. This is going to be, I was suffering. I was upset. He left me. I was yeah. miserable. I was yeah. living in a bar, a place lit by a two-bar fire. Or whatever. You know what I mean? It's going, to be, it's going to be that kind of thing. But anyway, they are recreating her voice by taking uh, lots of recordings and feeding into AI computers. And I'm, I can see that that would be, convincing i could see i could be convinced by the sound of a voice that i would take as being her you know but it's the idea of the of the image they're talking about the image now as far as i can see they're saying we want to come up with something that doesn't look too cartoonish um and i think what they're talking about is 
taking the sound of her records and creating a, a kind of a, a hologrammatic or whatever, an AI artificial image of footage that doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. So they're just making footage of her singing. And I thought that was interesting too. And it could be, you know, films are all about the suspension of disbelief, aren't they? They're, you know, you, you go and we went to see that Baz Luhrmann movie about Elvis. And by the end, you've sort of convinced yourself you are somehow watching Elvis. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And uh, uh, and it's the same, I suppose, with people going to see the, uh, the ABBA show. that You're convinced by the fact that these holograms are somehow kind of ABBA. You've bought into it, you know. And that made me think that if that was the case... Is there not a mind that was successful? Is there not a market for going back and creating footage of people of which there is no footage at all? Robert, Robert Johnson. Johnson. <laughs> there is no live footage of Robert Johnson. We've got there are thirty eight recordings or whatever, but you could you could fabricate that. Nick Drake. You? Nick Drake. Billy, but Nick Drake. There is no live footage. Absolutely. Billy Holiday. There's some, but there's not very much. Blind Willie McTell. Yeah. Blind Blake, Bill, Big Bill, Bill Brunsey. These are people who all died in the, I don't know thirties or fifties, whatever. Bessie Smith. Ma yeah. Rainey, Jelly Roll Morton. I mean, I just, I just think of all these people that you could tell their story. I mean, it does sound unbelievably corny, but if you buy into it and it works, but then the other, the other, interesting, other interesting thing about the PF thing is in the statement I read, they were they were talking about there are many qualities and many many themes in the Edith PF story that chime very strongly with people today. And so it's always interesting when you see these these kind of statements because it won't be long before somebody will saying will be saying something about sexuality or, yeah. or being an outcast or yeah. you know, <laughs> and, you know uh, somebody who culturally doesn't fit and so forth because that's what happens and already happens and will increasingly happen with the exploitation of the images and music of people who are no longer with us when they're no longer with us. Because even, I think we were talking about this the other week, you know, I read an interview with um, Elton John's um, husband, producer, so forth. David Furnish. David Furnish. And he was talking about how they developed Rocket Man. You know, the, the Rocket Man, they very definitely played up the parts of Elton's story that would appeal to an audience of 25-year-old moviegoers nowadays. Completely. Which is not necessarily anything to do with the truth, the true Elton John story at all, you know. And so they're going to be looking for, uh, you know, the ways that they can turn Edith Piaf into Amy Winehouse is basically what they're going to do. That's exactly it. That is what they're going to do. And then in time they'll do the same thing with Amy Winehouse and whoever. But, you you know, I... Well, we felt the same when we went and saw that Elvis movie, didn't we? We thought that Elvis Elvis was was recreated creator is someone who is incredibly respectful of all women, you know. And, yes. uh, you know, actually his, his reputation was somewhat different yeah, in somewhat real life. But anyway, they, they just re, he'd been wokeified to some extent. But uh, I tell you, I, I'm kind of intrigued with AI and, and movies and, uh, you know, because I, I think there is an interesting dimension of movies that is kind of beyond realism, which I think might be quite interesting. It's like I, I've, I no longer find it possible to watch films which are supposedly set in the First or Second World Wars that feature actors who were all born in, you know, 1995 or whatever. Yeah. Because they don't look like those people at all. They're all too well-nourished. They're Matt all Damon, toned. fabulous hair. <laughs> Great skin. <laughs> I'm sorry. There was nobody in the trenches who looked like that no. in 1916 or whatever. And I often think, you know, I, I'm a bit of a First World War, you know, I would say enthusiast. I read a lot about it. And, um, and you know, well, you and I have been to the First World War battle sites twice. twice so, yeah. yeah, you know, whenever I see a film that purports to, to bring home the kind of extraordinary business of the trench warfare in the, in the First World War, I, I, I can never get through the film. I just turn it off. I just think it's ridiculous because it's too modern, you know what I mean? And I often think animation is the way to do this kind of thing, you know. It's the only way to create a world that we can't possibly imagine rather than trying to using the using the inadequate tools of uh, contemporary actors. But that's what I think, anyway. So... Uh, 
Edith Piaf, uh, the Edith Piaf AI generated bio- biopic. Personally, this is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. Terrible story about this woman in her 70s who died at a Robbie Williams concert in Sydney, Australia. After, did you read this? I did read it. After the concert... Um, because according to accounts, she was trying to get out the, away from her seat quite quickly. Well, there were 40,000 people leaving, weren't yes. there, at the same time? And she just thought, I, 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 the quickest way to do this is to climb over the seating <sighs> and get to whatever she was trying to get to, some different exercise. But she then finished up falling down six flights oh, of stairs. God. I mean, that's appalling. It's, but, it's uh, terribly, terribly sad. But... I tell you, when I go to the theatre, if I, if ever I'm in the gods at the theatre in the West End, you know, people will know what this is like. If you, if you go up the top of, you know, I don't know the Gielgud Theatre or, or wherever, you know, you're almost, you're looking pretty much down on the stage, aren't you? Like, yeah. like directly down. The gradient is absolutely astonishing. And you're thinking, Do you know, this is quite dangerous it's a good job there aren't loads of people here who are in their 60s and 70s. And then you look around you and you're entirely surrounded yeah. by people in their 60s and 70s. There's nobody but people in their 60s and 70s in those seats in the, in the West End Theatre. And there's such a dangerous environment generally, you know, uh, particularly if people are, you know, trying to, trying to, trying to jump the queue. You know, that's, yeah, that's people good. leaning out of boxes. Yeah, did you go to see that Dame Edna show years ago when, when part of the act was that somebody fell out of a box? Do you oh, God, that? really? We were there. It was absolutely incredible. We were down the front of the stalls and there was suddenly a row, a very loud row in a box, uh, two floors up on our right. And suddenly this couple were there and you could see them having this big argument. And uh, the guy pushes the girl and the girl falls out of the box. <laughs> And drops down towards the audience, but is actually dangling on a <laughs> on a security rope. It's all part of the act, you know. I've never been in such an electrifying mode. It's extraordinary. Oh my! But God. anyway, the, the reason it worked is because you thought that's possible. You could fall out of one of those boxes. Grim. I, did I ever tell you about when I went to see Bruce Springsteen when he played in London? So it was eighty-five. Is it eighty-five? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he did that week at Wembley stadium um during you know, in the middle of the week you had the fourth of july and you know, i went to all i went to like five shows there sat with roger scott pretty much everyone wow. what, what a nice bloke roger yeah. scott was couldn't be a nicer person to sit there and watch bruce Springsteen with um but anyway on one occasion it must have been an afternoon show it must have been a saturday or something and because i remember it was daylight 
somebody somehow, you know, the massive stage, and then this whole kind of proscenium arch built round the stage to, to kind of frame it all. And somebody somehow got on the stage and started climbing the scaffolding and eventually went right to the top of the stage. Oh, God. So they were above the band. So if they'd fallen off, they would have killed a member of the group. So didn't they stop the show? No, because the band didn't know it was going on. That was the weird thing. You're in the audience with however many... And you can people, see this probably quite 70, pissed character. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you, yeah Waving I, a bottle of rouge. Yes, yeah. yes, or whatever. Either piss or just stupid yeah. or nauseating or, you know, what, who would do that, you know? What kind of dick would do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but the only people who couldn't see were the people on stage. And so the audience were, you know, understandably somewhat distracted because, you know, A, it's an annoyance. B, I don't wish to have my enjoyment of the concert, you know, spoiled by witnessing a death. Yeah, uh, Clarence Clements destroyed by... Well, two deaths, whatever. Plummeting from the, yeah. yeah. God. So if anybody was there um, and can also remember that occasion... Get in touch. I'd like to have my memory confirmed. I see all is not well in um, in the world of Daryl Hall and John Oates, Mark. This That's is an extraordinary a w- weird story. one, isn't it? That's a weird story. The- I mean, the, the, the announcement is, although we don't quite know why, is that there has been a restraining order taken out, isn't that right? Yes. Over Daryl Hall. Now, over John Oates. Rather. So, John Oates, what John Oates has done... I, I really don't know. Nobody knows. I mean, last it's interesting things that actually they made a record. No, they didn't make a record. Sorry, they toured, didn't yeah. they? In October 2022, so it's only a year ago. Yeah. But he has since, this is Daryl Hall, given an interview saying, uh, uh, people think that John Oates is my partner. He's my business partner. He's not my creative partner. <laughs> uh, he said, uh, we've always been very separate, and that's a really important thing for me. Mm-hmm. So basically, something has happened which can only be, Dave, that there's been some kind of threat or some physical threat or something. Why would you place a restraining order on somebody? Does this mean that, um, this really is obviously no just idea. a supposition on our part, he's been going around banging on Daryl Hall's windows. Or <laughs> I mean, I don't know what. What does that mean? I feel the fall there have been lots of very famous fallings out, haven't they? The Everleys, you know, the Everleys could bear to be in the same, they could only meet on stage and even then wouldn't look at each other. Eagles, Sam and Dave, same thing, you know. Simon yeah, Garfunkel, yeah. I mean, Crosby, yeah. Stills, Nash and Young. Uh, but, uh, but, none, but the none idea that none of them has gone as far as taking a restraining order out on another pretty, member of the group. It is pretty extraordinary. Because what you, what you have to remind yourself is that Daryl Hall and John Oates really go back a long way. Didn't they meet in 1967 or something like that? Yeah. They, you know, they were playing in, in bands around Philadelphia and just got to know each other and play together. And, you know, their first albums, you know, was it Whole Oats, that first one, and the Abandoned Luncheonette, all those records they made long before Brilliant they record. had hits, you know. Yeah. Um, so they're really, they're really, they really put the years in all the notes. And if they really didn't like each other all that time. I know. It must have been something of a trial, that, you know. <laughs> but to say he's not my creative partner is, is pretty damning, isn't it? It is really. I mean, the suggestion there is that this guy just got lucky because I told him what guitar parts to play and what to sing. Yeah. And uh, I'm the kind of musical architect of the whole venture. Yeah. So uh, I just thought it was amazing. There's something just completely gripping about it. Yeah. So we, I mean, we, often, often with groups, if, if there's a member of the group who's, who's just you can't quite deal with, um, you know, and it happened to Mick Jones and Pete Doherty and uh, David Crosby and, and Lindsay Buckingham to some extent, then you just get rid of them. Then, you're, then they're suddenly not invited in the, in, the, in, the, in the group anymore, you know. But when there's when you're only a duo, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Yeah, and also there, here's the here's the terrible thing is that um, you know everybody knows that Daryl Hall is the kind of is the singer, isn't he? Really, yeah. <laughs> he's, the, he's the front man. All that, yeah, stuff. completely. And yeah, okay. How much could you get for a ticket for Daryl Hall? I would suggest not a lot of money. No, how much would not. how much would you get for a ticket for Daryl Hall and John Oates? 
quite a lot of money. Yes, you would. It's, it's as simple as that, you know. They're, yeah. they're, they're umbilically connected whether they like it or not, you know. It's like, well, it's like Simon and Garfunkel, isn't it? You know, it is. It was, it's a classic case, you know. Although Garfunkel, to be fair, sang lead on an awful lot, and so a lot of the best-known yeah, a lot of the best known stuff and so forth. Where well, I don't think the same thing applies to John Oates. Yeah. Now talking of uh, talking of friendship, <laughs> I see that um, it appears to be the end of the road finally for Top Gear. Um, have you followed this? You yes, followed I've been following it very closely. Terrible. It was a very good interview with uh, with James May on the Today programme. I, I haven't got a lot of time for James May. He's a really bright guy. Well, I you say I got a lot of time for the whole thing. The, yeah. the um, so if people don't know this. It's, it's brought to an end by this terrible accident that happened to Freddie Flintoff, who's been latter day kind of presenter of it. You know, which is clearly just appalling, life changing. You know, accident, and uh, and obviously the powers that be decided this this game is not worth the candle any longer. You know, and I I think that's that's wholly right. Uh, but what I which also to... followed the Richard Hammond accident. Well, absolutely. It? I mean, but... Richard Hammond. I, I was reminded of the fact that Richard Hammond's car was in a jet propelled car, was travelling at three hundred and twenty miles an hour when he had his accident. I mean, that is. Um, he's going about almost three miles a minute. That's that's considerably faster than a Formula One car. That is. It's that, astonishing. That's ridiculous. It? So, taking the long view of Top Gear, just bear with me here, okay? Yeah. You know, it seems to me that Top Gear, there are kind of three stages in the life of Top Gear. There was the early stage with William Woolard and so forth, yes, that nobody remembers. And then there's the later stage with Freddie Flintoff and, and, uh, and, and his couple of partners and so forth, which really nobody remembers. And then there's that bit in the middle, which was when Jeremy Clarkson... Um, in the hamster and the James hamster May and James May, yeah, you know, they, it, they from my understanding was that they were going to can it, weren't they? The format it was it wasn't working at all, and then that was pretty much last chance saloon. Has anybody got an idea how this program can be done? And so they came along with the producers and so forth. This is the way it can be done, and they then there then followed this golden age of golden ages. <laughs> You know, all TV programs in their long history have a kind of golden age. That was the ultimate golden age, wasn't it? Because yeah, because the idea presumably was they changed it from being a, a, a kind of program for kind of car boffins to being petrol heads, wasn't it? It was just about people I, want to go I, out and just, you know, I, I I can remember seeing one episode where they were in, I think, in India, the one where they're trying to get to somewhere, I can't remember, was, and three different cars. Do you remember that one? Yeah. yeah. James May was driving a Rolls Royce. And he drives his Rolls Royce completely to the ground. He wrecks this car by just driving it over kind of rough terrain and things like that. And it sort of appealed to the kind of inner schoolboy, don't you think? Absolutely. Well, I, I think the thing about that program was so amazing. They, they, it gave that, you, as, as some of the men's magazines did at the time, you know, is it gave you an incredible insight into the male mind. This is you know, it. Everything this is, is played for laughs. This is, this is it because, you know, it worked because of the three of them. Yeah. You know, and the key person, and I know he's a controversial figure, but the key person, I don't care whether you like him or not, is Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah. It works because he's the big guy and he's the leader and he's slightly the naughtier of the three. Yeah. And the whole appeal of Top Gear was naughtiness. Yeah. That's what made it work. We're going to do things we really didn't ought to be doing. Yeah, dangerous driving, winding each other up, practical jokes. And I don't, I have no interest in the concept whatsoever once they take it to Amazon. No interest. Because it's no longer school. There's nobody to be naughty for at all. You know what I mean? It's Amazon, it's the world of streaming. Nobody cares, you can do what you like. Yeah. Whereas you're doing it for the BBC, that's different. Yeah. It's had that feeling, oh, they've gone a bit far. Well, time. they're going to get into trouble, as they're indeed not, they did, for very good did. reasons. I mean, it's some appalling thing. Of course it did appalling things. But I just want to say, I want to say one thing. You know, the core of Top Gear is that period when there are three of them. 
the core is Jeremy Clarkson. And the key thing that Jeremy Clarkson had is the thing that every single television producer or radio producer will tell you until they're blue in the face, even though they have no experience of doing it whatsoever, they will always say, talk to them as if you're talking to one person. Yes? And we all know intellectually that's the right thing to do. Let me tell you, Mark and I can tell you this, because we've done a little bit of this years ago. This is a really hard thing to do. It's a really difficult thing to do. And Jeremy Clarkson had that God-given skill to be able to look at a camera and talk as if he was just talking to one person. Incredible. I can still remember moments he did it. There's one when he's in a lift at the BBC and he says something slightly, slightly, uh, slightly un-PC about a girl he fancies in the office. And he just turned to the camera and said, I said that out loud, didn't I? <laughs> I thought, that is just so clever. She said it to me. I said, yes. how loud. <laughs> so I, that's, that's, got, that's the contents of my brain there. Absolutely. And I've let you, uh, give you a little insight. It's incredible. Yeah, so, you know, um, I think it's quite right that Top Gear probably is, is knocked on the head because, you know, everything has its day. But and also let, the, let's also not the, forget what made it so good. And also, the, just one other thing is just that the, 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 the kind of in-jokery of it was so like magazines. The Stig, oh, the Stig was an absolutely genius thing. The Stig uh, used to go, this is the original Stig, it was, like, it was a Perry McCarthy, he used to go to the programme in wearing his helmet. So he went, when he arrived, you couldn't see who he was. He used to put on an accent so no one knew it was his voice. He used to get change in his own little place. He used to eat his sandwiches at lunchtime when no one <laughs> could see him. And he kept from the actual production company themselves the secret of who he was. Isn't that amazing? It is. And now goes out on, 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 well, there's an irony, on the kind of after-dinner circuit, telling stories about it. The man who wasn't allowed to speak. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. And now we're joined by birthday boy, Simon Poulter. Hello, Simon. Happy birthday. When was it? Is it still to come or has it been? It, I still think it's going on because the cards are still up, but it, it was the 11th. He's got cards. He's That's brilliant. so nice. You still have good cards. Good ten hours. Good ten hours. <laughs> when you get to our age, it's not quite so rigorously celebrated. No, no, no. Shrugged no. off. There I, we are. I tend but, to keep them up until Advent. All right. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. So, Simon, you've got a log you want to throw on the conversational fire, as is uh, as is tr- traditional in this occasion. What is it? Yes. Well, many, many, many years ago, I, I used to do a little bit of, of music journalism for a living um, when it paid money. Uh, and I, 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 amongst all the different reviews that I used to write, I mean, I, I wrote a review once of, a, of a, an album by Dead Can Dance that I absolutely hated. Uh, and uh, I later got absolutely excoriated for because I was basically messing with what people seemed to think was a deity. So I just thought, with you guys having written so much over the years, there must be a review that you've written that you've sort of regretted afterwards and thought, and when people are basically taking you to task and say, you can't say that. That's a great, that's a good theme, actually. Deities, it's for another day. There's, yes. There are certain bands like Cocteau Twins, uh, Bell and Sebastian, Prefab yes. Sprout. There's certain groups you could not say anything remotely negative about. But anyway... It, get, it gets worse, this. I'll tell you, it's interesting you should raise this because for years nobody ever came back at you on anything at all because they understood that it was, you arrive for print and, you know, it lasts the week or month or, or whatever. Since print stopped, this is the odd thing that's happened, is that people now refer to things in print as if they're kind of holy writ. Yeah. Nobody ever comes back to anybody and anything they wrote on the Guardian website 10 years ago because that's just understood that that just disappears, whatever. Whereas if you committed this to paper, people occasionally post things. I find people occasionally post things on social media with little tears of, you know, all things I've done or whatever goes... I see you You didn't like Dixie's Midnight Runners or whatever, you know. And I think for crying out, no, I didn't. And fair enough, I still don't. And it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Because what I always say is other opinions are available. If you want them, you can have one of your own, for instance, or you can go and have mates who have different ones. Why does it bother people so much 
that somewhere there is a minority view of something. As if, as if nowadays we've all agreed on what the canon is. But it's a consensus, isn't it? It's a complete consensus. Yeah, we, we, we're all agreed, all right-thinking people agree that Dexie's been our runners and marvellous. And now we found this heretic <laughs> back, who's going to be burnt at the stake, <laughs> hung, drawn and quartered. It's terrible. It's ridiculous. You know, it's now got to the stage where kind of the, the, the rock... Canon is now there's more now more agreement around it than there is that there used to be in the kind of 19th century literature canon. You know, <laughs> it it really is like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's as if it's completely stopped, and we and we all agree that Nirvana were wonderful and the Clash were godlike and all these kind of things. And then all they all they ever do is add people to this canon. They never take anybody away. You know what I mean? Everybody eventually is in the canon. Everybody's approved of. Everybody's wonderful. It's there's simple. always someone somewhere flying the flag for them, isn't it? Therefore, yeah, they, there is. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry, I've uh, you, you've you've caught me. You caught me Touched on the a raw spot. nerve there. <laughs> very, very clearly. But I mean, what was the difference though between, say, getting a phone call from a record company press office? Oh, they never and getting did. the letter from the fan. Oh well, I mean, the record companies—they they understood it was all you know. It was. It was the hurly-burly of reviewing, wasn't it? And sometimes they did really well out of it, and sometimes they did less well out of it. It didn't matter. And sometimes a bad review, you know, just you know, promoted a certain amount of publicity, actually. It got yeah, people talking yeah, about things, so yeah, it was quite yeah, good. Yeah, it's just, you know, people, it's the, the tone of the way people respond is still very much the, the kind of wounded and rather priggish tone of the letters column, which is, I see you've given the so-and-so album to so-and-so to review, you know what I mean? And, um, and he really should wash his ears out or whatever. He's clearly missing the majesty of whoever it is, you know what I mean? And it's just, it doesn't matter. The it people really who really meant to was the people you, the people that you slagged off, the actual bands. That was the thing. You didn't mind meeting the old reader who'd, uh, you know, fan who was a bit aggrieved, but me- meeting my, I can remember the psychedelic furs after I'd given their, and the skids after I'd given their, their albums very poor reviews. That was terrifying, actually. They, they were very upset. Of course, um, the thing about bands is they always claim never to have read them at all. Yeah. And then quote them to you at great length. Because right. clearly <laughs> they have read them and they've read them hundreds of times yeah. over and over again to themselves. They go to bed at night just yeah. repeating lines. They go to their grave with them, you know. Which is why I genuinely do not read reviews of books of mine that get reviewed. I don't read them at all because I, I've discovered uh, that reviews always upset you. Doesn't matter whether they're favourable or unfavourable; they always upset you. There's something about them. That's, you know? that's absolutely true. It's really true because whatever yeah. they latch onto is not probably what you intended or whatever. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's yeah. just, and they say something that's factually wrong, or you know, it's just, it's just uh, destabilising. But I tell you the other thing about reviewing. Sorry, you got us going. Now. <laughs> I'll tell you the other interesting thing about reviewing the singles. I don't know if you ever did this. Reviewing the singles, you know, like Danny Buggies did it for The Enemy or whatever. I used to do it for Smash Hips quite a lot. Mark did as well. You know, we all did. Yeah. And when you have a load of singles to review, first of all, you've got to find the, you know, the kind of 15 out of the 50 that you're going to review. So that takes a long time. And then you have to think of something to say about 15 records. And what happens is you start to resent every bloody record. Because it's really hard to it's do. It's hard work, and it's also much easier to be funny yes. when you're being disparaging. It's yeah. really hard to be funny when you're saying something's absolutely brilliant. You come up with some terrific metaphor about how yeah. genius it is. But actually, it's very, very much easier to say that things are rubbish. So yeah. you kind of that's the that's the default position, really. And of course, it's now gone. It's just disappeared totally with print media, hasn't it? Really, you know. I'm sure there's nobody sitting there reviewing the singles this weekend anywhere on planet Earth, aren't there? <laughs> do you think there will be? What do you think, Simon? Well, I mean, I, I used to do a little bit of it, and it was always a bit of a rush because on the magazine that I wrote for, it was like the last thing in the production schedule was get the right. reviews out, which basically meant sitting there at you know some ungodly hour with a stack of records working way through. And, and as you say, trying to come up with something original each time 
and not resorting to simply, well, this sounds a bit like their last one. Or this it. sounds, yeah. <laughs> and and as you say, trying to be funny as well, or, oh, or very pompous, whichever whichever way you went, it was a nightmare. It's really hard work. Anybody who thinks it's easy hasn't tried it whatsoever. And you know what the truth is? The only honest review of any pop record is this. Write it down. Three stars, all right, if you like this kind of thing. If you like that kind of thing. That's right. But the trouble is, the only ones that people review are five stars or one star. Yeah. Because you're bound to get some kind of extremes that make it it, uh, gripping, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, I'm glad you've, Simon, you've provided the, a, a worthwhile public service in, in giving me an excuse to get that off my chest. <laughs> it's therapy. We should do this once a week. It feels better already. <laughs> yeah, you'll sleep well tonight. This is a new word in your ear slot. The, it the, is. The it is. Rant. It is. <laughs> what gets my goat? We used to have a column called What Gets My Goat in one of the magazines. I can't remember which it was. We did. What Gets we My did. Goat with Andy Gill, was it? I can't remember. <laughs> Maybe it was with you. I can't remember. Very well, good. Uh, well, look, Simon, thank very you. Very nice to see you. Thank you very much for joining us, and thank you for your log on the fire. And thanks and for your support. Happy birthday, ever. and thank you for your, for your support, which we hope we can continue to enjoy. The Word Podcast, one of the few things you really need in life. Okay. Well, we're joined by Kevin Walsh. Kevin, splendid to see you, our birthday guest. Happy birthday. Now, you've got an absolutely brilliant conversational log, which is you sent us an email saying that I think uh, of the last 16 books, I think that we've talked about or reviewed or interviewed the authors or whatever on the podcast, you have bought all of them, and I think you've you've read. How many of those have you read so far? So, So by my count, there's been 28 Oh, 28, you guys sorry. talked about in 2023. Yeah. The, um, and, and I've read 17 of them now. I read one since I sent the email to you. So the uh, that was the uh, the immediate records. Almost All right. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and then there's uh, there's about 11 that I haven't gotten to. And there's one that I haven't gotten, which is the uh, the island record one, which uh, which well, is not available here until December. And it's uh, expensive. Yeah, it's well, it's expensive to mail, to mail to America. I mean, that thing weighs a ton. Yeah. It's a foot yeah. square. But look, tell us the, which uh, ones you liked. So, uh, gosh, that's such a great question. I, I loved the, um, the, the first one that I loved was, gosh, let me reference it here if I can. The, um, the Peter the Asher one. Kevin's got a huge pile in front yeah. of him. The danger is that if he, it'll be like, it'll be like uh, Jenga or whatever, you know, pull out, pull out one and they're all pull out the Nick Drake book. Yeah. And it'll- so yeah. Peter, Peter Asher. Asher one, I thought was oh, absolutely yeah. spectacular. You know, you, I didn't realize, I guess I was alive in the 70s, so I knew what the music situation was like just on my AM radio. I didn't realize how much of that music he was responsible for yeah, or directly yeah, sure. involved in. Sure. Uh, which was amazing. Uh, I loved the. Uh, I read two books by the guy who wrote the uh, the James Bond and the Beatles. Uh, oh, book. John Higgs. John Higgs. Higgs. The yep. KLF book is fantastic too. The KLF book was amazing. I, I've been I've been at, telling all my friends they've got to read it. E, like I have to tell you, I don't think that I've ever heard a note of KLF music, and I found the book so fascinating. And even the the footnotes, which <laughs> hilariously, he's kind of apologetic for the whole time um but you know it is actually so interesting it's almost like having him sitting by you and commenting like yeah that paragraph doesn't really hang together very well <laughs> yes it's really uh it's just fascinating i thought that was great um uh, and, uh, and then the, the last one i guess i would say is the bg's one the bob stanley bg's all right one. Good. Very good. Uh, good yeah which again you know i i i encounter, first encountered the bg's on saturday night fever Right. And it very quickly became kind of cheesy and, and sure. something that I was too cool for. But God, listen, reading that through was just uh, amazing because they've had like three or four careers at this point. Right. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Remarkable. That, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely. Well, They're the psychedelic records story. they made, the late 60s, early 70s psychedelic records are fantastic, actually. Mining yeah, disaster, yeah, all those tracks. So how how yeah. do you get through all these things? What do you, you get? You one a week or something? Or you must yeah, do about one week. One. <laughs> yeah, I, I try. I try to read at night before I go to sleep, and I um I will admit this is something I don't want the as you would say the good lady wife to hear necessarily, but I have. <laughs> I have bought some of these also on audiobook, so I can listen to them in my car. Oh, right, 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 right. Um, yeah. But, uh, 
It it's is, so uh, funny. You're, 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 you're really talking the word in your real language if you're talking about the GLW. That's, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very funny. That's right. yeah. So, so uh, uh, you're wondering what we would recommend as well. Yes. Additional. Yeah. What, what would you One like? of the great rock books. I mean, you guys are both writers, so I think this would be a fascinating <laughs> well, one, thing to hear. One on. that we reviewed, I think it might have been last year or maybe two years ago now, which uh, you may already have read, was the John Cooper Clark. I've got it here, actually. Yeah, I want to be. It's, I want to be yours, but John Cooper. I have not that read one? that, although I oh do have that over here. It's, me. Right. it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, it really is good. It's about the fabric of life in the fifties and sixties. <laughs> it's about what's on the telly. You probably have got it there. He's got it there. He's got oh, it you there. have. Yeah. Kevin, Kevin Walsh. He, he got more books oh, than you Amazon. Must read it. It's just <laughs> incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I have not so yet read that. Read. Also, Viv Albertine's book, which I think is called Close, 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 Music, 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 Boys, Boys, Boys. I think it's very, very good. Oh, yeah, yeah that one I do you. not have. I'll have to track that one down. Yeah. Uh, the, the great classics I always go back to again and again. Um, uh, a What Bobaloo Bobble Bum Boom by Nick yeah, Cohen, which is mm. the kind of first rock book that I remember. Yeah. I remember reading Revolution in the Head by Ian MacDonald, obviously, the. Um, the, the Beatles one. And I, and I was the Peter Gralnick Elvis books. Have you read yes. those? Yes, oh, I have. Those are excellent. Yeah. So uh, good. Those are the, those are the ones I always, I always go back to the ones I always want to read have never been written and never will be written. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd like to read a really good book about Randy Newman. And I don't think oh, it's ever going to happen. Why will that not be written? It I don't be. know, because a publisher, he's just not box office, I suppose. No, he's not. You, yeah. you wouldn't, a publisher would say, no, there's no point. Nobody's, nobody's going to buy a book about Randy yeah. Newman. Well, there are, just not very many people. Yeah. yeah. But you wouldn't think, you wouldn't think somebody would buy a book on Peter Asher either, necessarily. <laughs> and, and here it but is. Like, say, the difference is Peter Asher, to, to be fair, Peter Asher will go around and do the chat shows and talk on the radio and all, oh, you know yeah. what I mean? And he's yeah. really good at and it. And also, there's a lot of dimensions to Peter Asher's story. You know, yes. you've got, you're covered straight into yes. the whole Beatles network, which is a very limited yeah, 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 thing. Yeah, so yeah. he's, he's, whereas yeah. Randy Newman's just about Randy Newman, really. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah. that's different. But maybe, maybe. Tell me about, do you guys know Ian McDonald? You must have known him. He was sort of a contemporary of yours. Is that I true? Don't, no, I don't, no, don't remember no. ever mess, meeting him. No, I know. I didn't must... overlap with him quite at the enemy. He stopped working at the enemy, I think, in about, I don't know, 77, 78 when yeah, I started. Like so I never met him. And he died when we were at Word, I think, even in about 2002 or something. So yeah. I'd love to have oh. met him. I mean, my God. That book, I, I reread it all the time. It's fantastic. I, think. I do too. It is my go-to. When somebody tells me oh, I'm interested in the Beatles, it is my go-to thing that I that I give them. I give them that one. I give them the um, the When John Met Paul book, which is a, a thin little, right. about less than 100 pages. And it's sort of almost like a poem. And the guy has gone back and looked at the shipping forecasts and all oh, this really? stuff really? from oh, that day. Gosh. It's very, it's very oh. detailed in some ways, but there's also not a lot of detail about about what actually happened. Oh, so you mean it's day. about the, the when they meet just that fate. day? Just that, that day. Yes, the specific day. Yes, the, yeah. it's a book, a whole book about the one day. That's amazing. I think it's I've so heard of that, but I've never read it. But it's yeah. called when John. I'm going to have to get hold of that when John, so, yeah, when John met Paul. So Kevin, well, lovely to talk to you. So when you when you go, go to bed tonight, what what are you starting on? Whatever happened to Slade? Or so, uh, <laughs> so the one that I'm partway through right now. Reach for the stars. Yeah, yeah, the one that I'm partway through right now is the Dylan one. The Dylan uh, backing. Uh, uh, oh, the musicians. Yes, yes, that's yes. a really good book. That's good. Which I've, I'm really enjoying so far. I just saw Bob Dylan on. Tuesday. So um, oh, that was, uh, oh, great. Yeah, that was a remarkable thing as well. And, and you, you, Dave, you prepared me for it a little bit because in fact, he was doing what you said. Everybody on stage is dressed in black, including him, but he's got a white hat. Oh, white that was hat. what Mark was talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah, white okay, hat. Yeah. That's yeah. right. This guy what, what a great something. piece of, yeah, what a great piece of sort of stagecraft, you know. It's that's very theater. It's very see, clever. That is every yeah. bit as much theater as, you know, I don't know, Devo or Yes or anything yeah. like that. It, you know, it's just those, those little gestures. They're it really is. important. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project... 
there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list. Teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, Kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.